welcome to episode 3 of Lift the Sink. I'm Paddy Dougherty and thank you all for tuning in once again. In today's episode we're going to have short stories from Fergal O'Neill who was the winner of this month's competition or submissions, whatever you want to call it, as well as a short story from Ashlyn Kyo who was the judge of this uh, this episode's submissions. I'm delighted to feature both those writers today in the episode. In addition to that, we're going to also have a review of Norman Mailer's Executioner song at the end of the episode. But first up, we have this episode's featured story by Fergal O'Neill. The Woo Shot by Fergal O'Neill. Mammy still did the ironing, but the uniform was different. Black slip-on shoes, boot-cut jeans and a short-sleeved shirt allowed easy passage by the bouncers. As I treaded my way through the crowd, the carpet underfoot yielded with an unusual degree of resistance. Every now and then I thought I could see it, but you always see what you want to see. Wandering eyes were instead encouraged to stare at a gyrating Beyoncé projected onto the main wall, emulated by the gyrations of all the single ladies below. This was it. This was living. I found Conal leaning against a ledge in his favourite corner. He kept watch over a whisky and a pint. I had to reach over his ear, arm on shoulder, to ask the important question. Which one's mine? He surprised me. The whisky. I'm having a Minahan special. This was apparently a favourite of Tom Minahan, the politician, and the latest in a long line of things Conal had read on the internet. Alcoholic politicians soon became the topic of the evening, toing and froing to shout comments across the other's shoulder, looking into the eater as our wit passed over the ear. Sure, it's just a hazard of the job, Conal defended. A hazard I'd be too inclined to embrace, I countered, the delay between call and response dampening my impeccable comic timing. As I retreated, it flashed, again. Yeah, I think so, the dress. The flood was beginning to rise, forget about it. Conal saw my distraction. His eyes followed mine, and he turned around. Ah, I see. She's looking well. Sure, she always looks well. She looked well on Paddy's night. My God, she did. The white polka dress was out then, too, perched in the corner of the smoking area, surrounded by a sea of cigarette smoke and greasy pints. The red glow of the patio heater shone above her head like a beacon drawing me to shore, or drawing me to sea. The flood rose then too. With each step towards her, a million paths flashed into view, each one leading towards a jewel with an invisible soldier, each one ending with a blade through the heart. What do I say? How should I stand? Should I just turn away? No sooner had the thought left, but the gods answered my plea. Her finger tapped the end of a cigarette and the options disintegrated. The paths merged into one, one correct path. I see you're a smoker now, I declared. I think it sounded casual. No matter, it got a giggle and a hug. Her free arm reached out and I could smell her perfume as we embraced. My God. Well, sort of, she responded casually. The next drag barely entered her mouth. We chatted about college and why we rarely talk anymore. I think the last time we spoke was when I called over to yours, she said. All I can remember is wading through rubbish. Oh, and wasn't there grease from the oven spilling out all over the kitchen floor? That place was a death trap. Yes, I had a witty response for that one too. I know, sure wasn't Conal wearing his helmet into the kitchen there for a while, just to be on the safe side. It earned me another laugh. She grinned as she brought her glass to her lips, 
looking up through her brow to make eye contact. That look, the smile, and the eyes, my God. Wars have been fought over less. That place was disgusting, but it's sort of cute, she conceded, leaning over to rub me on the arm. What an idiot. A runt. Conal interrupted my days. Ah, Jesus, not this lot. We were joined in our corner by the neighbours from next door. The girl from Cavan rattled off the important news of the night. We had wine at mine, then we went to coins. It was so busy. We saw your man who scored the penalty for Kilishandra on Sunday. Do you know him? Oh, he's great. He used to go out with my sister's best friend. Oh, I don't know his name now. As she lifted her glass to her mouth, I couldn't help but interrupt her Joycean stream of consciousness. What's that pink stuff? I half expected to know the answer. Her eyes beamed as we moved to a topic close to her heart. It's a woo-woo shot. Oh, they're so nice. Coins are doing a promotion and I'm hooked. They look like what a unicorn would drink, don't they? Oh, they're really lovely, but I'd say they're not the sort of thing... Not the sort of thing I'd like? Not the sort of thing I'd like. I heard that on Easter Sunday night in Coins, the last time a polka dot dress came into view. I can still feel that tap, manicured nails on the hunched shoulders of a man forgotten. I'd suggest a woo-woo shot, but it's not the sort of thing you'd like. She caught me by surprise, and the floods didn't have time to rally. How about a compromise, I bargained. For every woo-woo, we'll have a whiskey. She couldn't argue with that. I watched her cringe as the whiskey stung, an image burned in my mind forever. Man, she was gorgeous. We spent most of the night on the dance floor. Every now and then her eyes would close and I'd watch her head tilt innocently from side to side, her mop of curls bouncing to the vague movement of the beat. Every hormone screamed at me to do something. How, though? How? Say something witty. Dance like an idiot. Do something. All I wanted was to take her by the hand and sit together in the corner, her head resting in the nook of my shoulder and her hand on my chest. Oh, that's Paul McHugh and Sinead Flynn, they'd say. A steady line. But it wasn't. It was Sinead Flynn and one of a long line of suitors, sniffing around, dancing like an idiot. It wasn't long before the woo-woos began to take hold. Thanks for keeping me company, Paul. I don't know what would have happened otherwise. You're really lovely. I thought about you the other day I was cycling home. It made me smile. What a runt I was. That should have been enough. Never mind the rest. You're great, Paul. I, I really love you. I convinced myself at the time that it was probably the drink. But what if it wasn't? What if she dreams of resting her head in the nook of my shoulder, or of taking me to house parties or parents' birthday parties? But what if she doesn't? What if she doesn't? I took the meaning out of everything she just said with a light-hearted dismissal. Ha! And I love you, Sinead. <laughs> Anything to avoid confrontation with a decision. No, Paul, I love you. I do. I love you. If only I could have told her. I do love you, Sinead. My God, I do. Not just when I'm drunk and need friends, but when I've nothing but my thoughts for company. When I lie awake, lamenting the day. When tides build. That look. That smile. To see it forever. That's all I want. But I can't even open my mouth. It's your round, Paul. Conal tapped me on the arm and pointed to a dry glass as the ghost of Tom Minahan watched proudly. It was ten to two and panic had set in all around. Inside I could feel it, drip by drip, every crevice filled with the options, the outcomes, the decisions, the flood. What if I don't bump into her? I should have made contact earlier when I had the chance. I've missed my shot. 
I leaned across the bar to give my order, struggling to describe a Minahan special. A voice spoke gently across my ear. Mine's a woo-woo. I turned to see a polka dot dress leaning against the bar. I tried to be casual in my response. I think they only do whiskey here, I said. She laughed a little too enthusiastically. I could sense the pressure building and needed something to provide a release. That dress is hard to miss. I thought I saw you earlier. I tried to keep calm, but a slight quiver slipped through. I know, she said. Her gaze lingered. The flood rose once more, so I looked away, busying myself with the drinks. She watched carefully, and I avoided eye contact until we clinked glasses. The sickly sweet concoction was gone in one long swig. Her face crunched in a ball after the saccharine hit had departed. Her glass hit the bar firmly, and she turned towards me. What do I say, I thought. What should I say? I need to say something, but I'll say the wrong thing. I could feel it again, building, constricting, tightening, flooding. She said nothing. I said nothing. She moved in closer, the smell of her perfume lingering before me. With each movement, she was reducing the number of options, tearing through the decisions until the paths merged to one. One correct path. She faced me straight on, our faces inches apart, and her gaze unrelenting as she moved her hand to take mine. This was it. After the woo-woo comes the shot. Right then, that was the woo-woo shot by Fergal O'Neill. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Fergal for sharing his story with us. And I've also invited uh, Judge Ashling Kyo to uh, explain a little bit what she liked about the story and why she chose it. So here's Ashling talking briefly about Fergal's story. Hi, Patty, it's Ashling. My choice of short story is this month's winner is The Woo Woo Shot. I love younger voices in writing and this one was incredibly clear, so much so that I felt I was in that nightclub too, feeling all of the anticipation and angst of the narrator. I also loved how the story grabbed me from the start and fired me straight in. And while it moves at a pace, there's still a real beauty for me in the author's eye for detail and how he captures the truth of feeling in the smallest of gestures. I hope your listeners enjoy it too. And now for our second featured story of the episode, and it is by our aforementioned judge, Ashling Kyo. So uh, I came across Ashling's writing, God, about 10 years ago when I first started writing, and I joined a, a kind of an internet writing group called writingforall.ie, where people were posting their you know, poems and stories for critique and, and whatever. And I just came across... Ashling is one of the people on the website and her writing really stood out for me among the others, including my own. And uh, this this story, I think I actually read on the website. So and it's always stuck with me and uh, I'm delighted she's uh, allowed me to read it on the episode. Uh, I just love it. And in particular, I love the last paragraph or two without giving away anything. It's just for me, it still makes me laugh. It still makes me kind of makes me think. Bookworm by Ashling Kyo I am a writer. I write when my heart is full. I write when the pain is almost physical and the tightness in my throat means writing is the only way I can let my thoughts run free. I write when I am close to tears. Then I take a pen and watch as pen and hand glide together across paper. I listen to the gentle scratching of my pen nib on a single sheet carefully placed at the centre of my desk so that my lamp and hand cannot create a shadow, and I begin to exhale. 
Detention relieved, I breathe easier knowing that every movement is a part of a new world I am creating, that every ink stroke on that pristine white sheet of paper begets a new reality. I sit in silent hope that the shapes I have fashioned, the letters, will spill out words and that these words can be sequenced to make sentences, a narrative, a story. Letters written are the only way I have of making sense of the world. Words printed on a page always make perfect and exact sense to me in a way the spoken word does not. My brain cannot decipher your spoken words from the noise of the traffic or the hum of the fridge or a radio played at a low volume. In my world there is no relief, only ground. You speak, and I hear a symphony at crescendo. In conversation I am often accused of looking blank and unresponsive. In conversation I am struggling to understand what you are telling me. I watch your mouth, the formation of words on your lips, hoping I can link them to formations on a page that I recognize and understand. I have always been obsessed by letters and words. I learned to read at such a young age I cannot remember a time when I could not read. My family have a litany of stories to tell about my extraordinary abilities with words, how I read my school reader for the year in a single night after my first day at school, how, from then on, I spent 45 minutes each day with the school's principal reading with him, how when my abilities were assessed at nine years of age, the test indicated I had a reading age of 15 years. I would have preferred to be gifted with an ability to run without falling over my own feet, or to talk on the phone without stuttering, or to assess the speed of an oncoming car, because, remarkable as all of it was, it made me different. It made me stand out from the crowd, a target for bullies and other people's resentment. Swat. Know-it-all. Teacher's pet. It made me want to hide, and hide I did. I hid inside books where I understood the rules, where letters and words spelled out the message that good will always triumph over evil, and no bad deed goes unpunished. Books were where I lived. I was the big sister in Darty Edwards' My Naughty Little Sister stories, George in Enid Blyton's Famous Five, Margaret in Judy Bloom's Are You There God? It's Me, Margaret, and Anne in L. M. Montgomery's Anne of the Green Gables. In my teens, I was Claire in Maeve Binchy's Echoes and Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. I read to escape, and the adult world loved me for it. Oh my gosh, you are such a smart cookie, they said. A real bookworm, they said. You'll go a long way, they said, and I did. I went a long way without ever leaving the house. My house, my home, is a shrine to the written word. Writing and collecting books are my life's work. I have found many, many friends inside the books I have read. My so-called real friends regarded my love affair with the written word as a sickness. They viewed my inability to part with a book as hoarding. But I have always felt a strong urge to preserve and protect the books I have read. A finished painting is displayed and admired. Why discard a finished book? At night I sit at my desk and write. I hear voices, young voices, echo down the street outside my window, strident and demanding. They, the instant gratification generation, do not know and cannot imagine a life without smartphones, iPods, Twitter, Facebook. They have never experienced the joy of losing themselves in a story. My dream is to bequeath to them an alternate world, one where I create a vivid and living picture of events, where emotion and sensation leap from the page and are carried onward in the heart of the reader, where other flesh and blood humans can experience how full and how empty I am in the moment when I first pick up the pen. 
I am not sure when the books I have collected over my 41 years formed a pile high enough to block the light from my windows. Nor am I sure when opening the front door became something I did only to receive a weekly delivery of groceries. And I cannot say for sure when contact with my few friends became limited to text messages, although I will admit it suited me quite well. Text messages, 160 letters or characters typed and displayed on a screen, were, to my adult mind, a perfect method of communication. I say were because text messages, like friends, are now a thing of the past. My so-called friends did not understand why I couldn't just move the books to open the door, or why I needed to keep them all in the first place. I grew tired of trying to explain and stopped replying to their messages. They sent Orla. She arrived unannounced with a bottle of red and insisted I open the front door, even though it wasn't Thursday, which is the day when I cleared away for the Tesco delivery man. Unaccustomed to entertaining, I led her into the sitting room and sat in my reading chair. Since I have space enough for only one chair, Orla chose to perch on the top of a stack of travelogues I was in the process of cataloguing. She placed her wine glass on top of my copy of The Kindness of Strangers, and I winced at her thoughtlessness that glass would leave a ring mark. She looked at her glass of wine, precariously balanced, and picked it up again. With a slow wrist motion she swirled the ruby red liquid around inside the glass. Her eyes followed the gentle movement of the liquid. Nonetheless, she began to talk by asking, How are you? She placed an emphasis on the last word. It made her sound patronizing. I shrugged, and I told her I was the same as always. She said nothing except, Oh. She regarded her wine for a few moments, then mumbled something about there being no easy way to say this. She shifted position several times and chewed her bottom lip thoughtfully, which had the effect of causing the blood-red lipstick she wore to smear. She looked bedraggled and cheap. She looked like she might belong on a bar stool in a seedy hotel in one of my stories. I watched her mouth moving and tried to focus. Her voice sounded odd, thin, but she went on, about how she and Jim and a few of the others had been talking and how they think I have a problem. Something lodged itself in the pit of my stomach. Why is it always me who is the problem? I waited, said nothing. Orla looked at me, and for a split second her eyes met mine, then she rolled them towards the ceiling and sighed. The next thing she said was about how they, my so-called friends, think that staying home, reading, is not good for a person. I failed to see how reading can be anything but beneficial, but before I could say that, she continued to tell me that I never go out, and I never have people around, and that I don't even have a job anymore, all I do is read and sort books. I reminded her that I am a writer as well, and she pulled a face and said, in a plaintive voice, that she didn't know how to make me see. I said I had no idea what she meant, but the feeling in the pit of my stomach was a cold, menacing fury that for some reason compelled me to stand and take a box off a nearby shelf. I took the lid off and shook the loose-leaf paper all over the floor. I found Orla's eyes, then looked back at the floor. See? The gaze said, my manuscript. Orla kneeled with her back to me and began to leaf through the pages. Her eyes scanned them and she shook her head as she speed-read their contents. I shifted from one foot to the other. For a few minutes there was nothing else to hear but the rustling of paper as Orla sifted through my work. When she finally spoke, her voice was high-pitched, shrill. She asked me, Is that it, Anya? Is that all there is of your book? I nodded assent. She let out a deep, throaty groan and said, But it's not a book. 
Or can't you see that? See what? I asked. Orla swore a couple of times before inhaling and exhaling deeply. She shook her head again and asked why she could not make me see. I understood the rhetorical nature of the question and didn't answer. She looked at me very intently then and asked again. I had no idea what she was talking about and I said so, at which point Orla shrieked that she said she could not make me see that I have a problem. She shouted something about it not being normal, whatever it is, and when she finished shouting her face was red and her voice quivered and I thought she might cry. I asked her if she was okay. She glared at me and snorted, then she sort of laughed, a funny, hiccupy laugh. She stood up and pulled her coat on, then snatched her bag from the floor. She walked towards the front door and I followed in hostile silence. It was as I reached for the deadlock that Orla spoke again and asked me to think about what she had said. I opened the door and I held it for her and she sighed and muttered something I couldn't quite hear. Then she was gone. For an hour afterwards I couldn't think of anything else. I was at a loss to understand. Why was she so distressed? It was after 11 the same night when her text message came. She said she couldn't do this anymore, that she has been doing some online research and believes I have obsessive compulsive disorder and am in need of professional help. What does she know? OCD? Hyperlexia? Bibliomania? These are all real and debilitating conditions. I know. I know all about them. I have dozens of books on these subjects and I have read them all. Okay, so that was a Bookworm by Ashling Kyo. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And a big thank you to Ashling for sharing the story with us. It's uh, one of my favorite short stories, I suppose, in general, not just of Ashling's. Okay, so now we'll move on to the final segment of the show, which is the what I'm kind of calling the cringe review, because it's the segment where I review a book that I've read recently, or maybe two books, and I usually cringe when I listen back to it. Okay, so the book that we're going to be talking about today is Norman Mailer's Executioner's Song. This book was published in 1980 and it won Norman Mailer the Pulitzer Prize. To categorise it, it would be a sort of a true crime novel in the vein of Truman Capote and the writings of people like Joan Didion from that era of the 60s and 70s in America. And it tells the, the story of Gary Gilmore. Gary Gilmore was from Portland, Oregon. And he was a man who spent the majority of his life, uh, more than half of his life, in prison. Uh, first for minor offences, I guess, like robbery and, uh, I guess, assault. And then later, one day in 1977, uh, after his girlfriend Nicole had broken up with him, he went and shot two men dead in cold blood over a two-day period. And the twist in the story, I guess, is that Gary asked for the death penalty. He insisted that they give it to him uh, and this caused a kind of a big sort of hoopla in the society at the time between the American Civil Liberties Union, who was against the death penalty, against capital punishment, and then I guess the certain other forces like the Mormon Church, etc., that were, I guess, in favor of capital, capital punishment. And it just he became the focus of this great debate or this great sort of public trial. So where to start with this uh, with this novel? 
it's kind of hard to think of something to say about a novel of a thousand pages that it, the novel itself hasn't already said it. So I guess I'll start with, in my experience of Mailer, having read advertisements for myself, uh, The Fight and The Gospel According to the Sun over the years without being a particularly big fan of them, but without uh, with always enjoying them at the same time. Uh, I found that he was a writer who he kind of enjoyed being authoritative about his characters and their actions. He was not someone who was shy about his own eloquence as a as a as a writer. In Executioner's Song, however, he takes a backseat big time. He gathers the facts like a kind of dispassionate journalist, imparts them without judgments or embellishment. The prose is basic, but it is unrelenting. A thousand pages of simple prose somehow infects you. The sheer detail and the scale of inclusion. The processing we're we're invited to do creates an experience that I think was, for me at least, uh, beyond vivid. It's not only a telling of the story of Gary Gilmore, it's also a telling of how society through the media and the courts tells the story of Gary Gilmore. It's a telling of a telling, if you like. Uh, It's an exploration of how we digest a news story, how we are compelled towards the absurd, the sordid, our kind of voyeuristic consumption of tragedy through media. For 1970s America, Gilmore provides an intriguing distraction when he books the system. He accepts his punishment, wills his own execution. He dares society to indulge in the bloodlust it calls capital punishment. He really goads their morality with his courage. Ultimately, I feel Mailer through this book is challenging the reader to explain what it is exactly we find heroic about Gilmore. Even with all Gilmore's disgusting deeds and opinions detailed throughout, it's hard to get to the end of this book and not feel there is something heroic about what he did. I won't say much more about this book, except that in this review I haven't even mentioned Nicole Baker, Gilmore's lover, who is perhaps the most inscrutable force at play in the novel. There is as much to say about her as there is to say about Gilmore. And similarly, the characters of Larry Schiller, uh, he's like a vulture-like TV producer who gathers all the limbs of of Gilmore's life story together before the carcass begins to rot. And his story has its own morality play going on as well. I just don't have time to do this book justice. There's so many things going on in it. Gilmore is obviously the centre of the story, but I guess Gilmore's love affair with Nicole is really the... I mean, I think that I could... You could have done a review where you don't even mention he gets executed. You just look at the dynamic of the relationship because it really is a, a very in-depth study of an abusive relationship as well and the psychology of that and what makes Nicole continue going back there fall even more in love with him after he kills those people it's even as I even even as I talk now I'm just getting more confused and uh, baffled by it but it is a book that stays with you afterwards big time anyway that's the end of the cringe review and it's also the end of the podcast once again, I'd like to say thank you to Fergal O'Neill and Ashling Kyo for contributing to the podcast and to everybody who submitted to it. There were a lot of great stories there and it was, I think Ashling had a difficult time coming up with the one she came up with. So um, I'll be back with another episode again, hopefully in around six weeks, roughly. Just keep an eye on the Twitter feed for that, for announcements of when the closing dates are for submissions. And just for anyone who wishes to submit, the email for the show is liftthesink at yahoo.com okay well then I'll leave you at that and say goodbye thanks again good luck